everybody. Welcome, welcome here. Show 116 on Crypto Voices. Just us today. Matthew here with our co-host, Michelle and Alec. What's going on, guys? What's up, guys? Hey, what's up? I feel like just us is like pejorative. <laughs> it does. I didn't <laughs> didn't quite didn't quite mean. Uh, yeah, maybe we should restart that one. Just kidding. No, uh, I like yeah, it. <laughs> it was it didn't exactly come out the right way. But yeah, it's it's been a whirlwind for me, guys. Just uh, finally uh, joined you guys in adulthood. I'm a, I'm a new father and very very excited uh, for that. So it's uh, it's good to be back and trying to settle into somewhat of a routine here now. So. Uh, mm. Yeah, good luck with that. Did you uh, did you get any like birth rights into the blockchain somewhere? <laughs> I did. I did, in fact. Oh, nice. Did a uh, a hashed um, little little information hashed in there. Uh, so nice. So uh, that's awesome. That's cool. That will outlast any uh, any registry that can be done here in uh, the Baltics or the U.S. or anything for sure. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would assume that when your daughter is in college, she, that there will be significant bragging rights for that. <laughs> um, you know, looking back and like, oh yeah, twenty years ago, my dad, you know, hashed <laughs> hashed my birth weight. Yeah, I hope that. Uh, yeah, when she's in college, they're <laughs> arguing about those types of things and nothing. Uh, can't be thinking about you know her as a as a grown adult yet. You know, I gotta just. I'm still in. Still in baby mode and and everything's so innocent and nice. So mm. uh, <laughs> no, but it's great, man. It's great. It's um, you know. Don't talk about too many of those personal things with the listeners uh, much, but very happy to say that uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful baby girl. And does she have a wallet yet? <laughs> <laughs> she definitely has some uh, some Bitcoin held in uh, in custody. There's a term, I guess it's in custody, but like you know, the Federal Reserve holds like three trillion of uh, bonds in in custody for other central banks off you know off its balance sheet off other banks balance sheets i think that's the word in custody so yeah she has some she has some as i'm sure your children do as well <laughs> thinking ahead if i could go back i would transfer on the day of birth so that there was a utxo uh, from the birthday but mm. you know i wasn't thinking clearly at the time yeah, that's a good idea let's keep that keep that in mind for number two i remember well we did this for both of our kids so my my version of memorializing their birth was to figure out how to fill out all the paperwork at the hospital without revealing any of their <laughs> real information, uh, which I'm sure I shouldn't have done and probably at least broke some hospital policies. <laughs> but I can tell you that they don't really check or enforce to make sure that, for instance, you're just taking that kid to the house that you say they live at uh, with <laughs> the parent parental information that you claim is true. Yeah. So I don't know how it is in other countries, but here in America, you can have a baby say you live anywhere and walk out the door with them. Yeah, it's pretty wild, you know, the, the, the process of, you know, turning this little young being into this sort of registered citizen of the world or whatever particular, you know, uh, flag you live under. Uh, I have a buddy, uh, a couple friends in Estonia and they tell me, cause Estonia, you know, is this very tech forward thinking country. Right. And they, as I understand, they literally, when the baby is born, they take the baby away for like 30 seconds and, and the baby is like tagged like digitally, like some, not, not like, you know, playing with a chip <laughs> yet, but <laughs> Who knows? But well, yeah, man. But there is this this process, like immediately, where where she's she's you know there, she or he that baby in Estonia is registered the, digitally, like immediately. So mm. uh, it's not that way where where we are. But uh, it's much more manual. 
process. Yeah, we, we get like a handwritten paper from, from someone in the hospital and then have to go to the city hall to register. Yeah. Like Alex said, it is the same same idea. It's like all declarative. You can put basically whatever you want in that. The downside of that was though, so not too long after each of our kids were born, I started the process of a credit freeze for them, uh, which it turns out, at least in the U.S., that credit theft among minors under 18 is super common, and it's an accelerating group of uh, victims. And it's basically because if you steal someone's credit when they're one, they might not notice until they go try to get a car loan at 18 or something. Mm. So you have a long period of time under which that identity can be assumed, and it's less likely that it would be noticed. Uh, and so I was like, oh, you know, I'll be a good privacy dad and go, you know, immediately freeze their credit. And it's a really onerous process, um, much, much harder than doing it for an adult and actually like really harder than much harder than any registration that I did. Uh, and they want you to send like physical documents and mail everything in. And if there was any indiscrepancy, which of course with my stuff there was, uh, there, uh, Indiscrepancy is not a word, is it? I think discrepancy is the word. Um, but <laughs> it sounded enough. like a word when I said it. Uh, but then they'll send it back. And so I had to go back and forth and mailing everything. And it was candidly like, I wish I wish it on no one. It's really difficult. That is interesting, though. Quite practical advice. And uh, I, I can't imagine for Europeans it's as big a deal because we, we have just very strong registration systems here. And also people don't use a lot of credit cards anyway. But in the US, for sure, uh, uh, that seems like a major, major issue. That's quite interesting. Yeah. But you got it done. You succeeded in doing it. Yeah. I, well, mostly I still have one credit bureau for one of the kids. That, um, so to their credit, they should be scrutinizing what I'm sending them because I'm trying to do it without revealing true address. And so that's the challenge. Uh, and so um, I've been able to kind of like muscle my way through it, but it's not easy. I think it would probably be easier if I just you know, used all our real address information, but that would defeat the purpose. Uh, so I'd forgotten, you guys don't use a lot of, why, do, why aren't credit cards as popular there? It kind of goes into what, uh what we can talk about soon with the with you know some of these money supply updates, but like uh, Europe is just a weird sort of uh, well not weird it's just it's quite it's vastly different from the way that you know Americans save money. Um, Europe is very cash heavy. Like there's much larger cash balances in banks for uh, citizens. They don't have a lot of uh, brokerage accounts. Um, they don't have simply a lot of uh, like people, if they're saving in sort of non-bank deposit assets in Europe, it's usually like their house or their apartment, hmm. or you know maybe maybe some stocks that they hold with their bank, with their bank, the bank themselves, the, the banks themselves will hold the stock certificates. So it's very very different from the whole brokerage system in the U.S. and thus the credit system in the U.S. Stock investing is different than credit cards, but it's it's just sort of um, they certainly they have credit bureaus, they have all those things. But they're just the whole system is uh, it's less extreme, let's say. And uh, from my understanding, at least here in Eastern Europe, I don't know, Michelle, if you know, notice anything different in Western Europe, but like people just hold cash in accounts a lot, and it's I think it's relatively rare that like the average person is like paying with the, with some credit card with a big balance. Like they might maybe one per family, maybe uh, certainly a risk of identity theft is there. But yeah, it's just most people just hold cash in accounts and they don't have stocks, they don't have 
bonds. They just uh, they hold cash in bank accounts. Yeah, I think that's mostly an Eastern European thing. In in, in France, at least, we have a lot of credit cards and, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm just I'm just reading at the same time like the the official statistic like twenty five point four percent of uh, families have uh, credit for not buying a house but like just. Uh, Consumer credit. Consumer credit. Yeah. And the average amount is 72,000 euros, which is huge. Yeah, that is actually quite big. But that includes, I mean, that includes buying cars and stuff. It's not only credit cards. But anyway, yeah, what is way different from the US is it's impossible for a minor to have any uh, debt in a bank uh, or credit. Yeah. You, you can't even get a debit uh, the, uh, uh, a, car, a credit card like a Visa card from your bank. You can only get a debit card uh, until you're 16, I guess. And then you can switch to a regular one. Yeah, and I mean, I, I should be be fair. Like, I'm definitely not in the that industry. That Certainly, there's a lot of consumer credit here as well. They've get, People have gotten screwed with these, like, they call them fast credit, you know, SMS credit type things where you just like, you know, get some quick loan on your phone that definitely people have been ripped off with those things. Hmm. What I am in, uh, thinking about is just the massive bureaucratic communistic overhang of like documents and registration, which happens here. Basically like, you know, the notaries have huge amounts of power, all this stuff. So where it's like, it's, it's just, it's hard to get away with forging a lot of documents for big things here because you, a lot of times it has to be notarized. Hmm. Uh, you know, the IDs and passports are passed around all the time, which is bad, as we know, uh, with all the hacks that are happening. But um, at least it traditionally is done here, like on a paper level, like on, you know, come to the notary, show your passport, do, do this and that. So it's, it's different. It's different, at least in Eastern Europe, as far as I'd say the risk of like blatant identity theft does identity theft happen in france which i'm sorry it happens but is it like yeah it's a it's a pretty big issue actually yeah, mm. yeah and actually it's so hard to to prove that you're not the person uh, who who signed that credit or whatever that was um people who are the victims of, of identity thief are in a really deep shit here <laughs> yeah it must be paying well right because it's such a huge issue everywhere and it's ubiquitous uh probably i don't know it's been a while they didn't uh make any tv show articles about that but yeah that sounds about right oh he's saying i mean i think there's like what is it like the average time to unwind an identity theft is a year and we were talking with josh from voltoro he said his friend it took years and years and then finally got it all unwound and then two months later it happened again yeah that's horrible Oh my God. For some reason, this conversation reminded me of my first, my first ever banking transaction was when we were living. So I grew up in Europe and we were living in Austria and I was in, I think first grade maybe. Uh, and this is right at the time of, you know, the Berlin wall was falling and, um, there, I'm sure that I was sitting there like with my parents and they were watching the news or something. And I heard something about currencies. And so, uh, I had some Austrian shillings at the time and I told my mom, I said, I, I need to get this money into a hard currency. <laughs> and so I had her take me to the bank and we exchanged my like 50 Austrian shillings for six US dollars or whatever it was. And that was my first experience at a bank, uh, which turned, it's kind of funny that that would be my first banking experience and kind of lead me you know, later into actually caring about hard currencies. How old were you then? Six, six years old, seven years old. <laughs> uh, nice. Just like repeating what I heard on the TV, you know, you got to get your money into hard currencies. <laughs> so I did. 
Impressive. Yeah, it was a good move. <laughs> yeah, it was a good move. Thus, you found Bitcoin. Yeah, right. No, it, it seems very fitting. Uh, you know, here a few years later. Well, we've we've run the gamut there from parenting to uh, credit checks and identity to to hard currency. That's actually the topic I wanted to to start with. We we launched the global monetary base update yesterday. Um, it's the quarter quarterly update number fourteen. And uh, yeah, it's getting interesting. It's getting very interesting where we are now. Uh, again, it's not it's not about just like showing price and rankings and stuff. It's about understanding, you know, what the money means compared to other monies and other hard currencies, as you said, um, or soft softer currencies. But um, yeah, the of all the the physical dollars, euros, yen. UN in the world, and then all of the uh, the ledger balances that every bank has with their central bank, which is also basic money. It's like it's like the checking account that every bank has with their central bank, which is the ultimate settlement that they do uh, every day when they when they clear their liabilities with each other. Uh, all that money together roughly totals twenty nine point three trillion dollar equivalent in value twenty nine point three trillion. And uh, Bitcoin at you know 1.2 trillion is uh, is at its highest uh, dominance index uh, so far, about 4.2 percent of the total there, and uh, at about 1.3 trillion in market cap, or roughly around 68 thousand dollar price, it will match the level of the formerly Great British Pound Sterling, the oldest. Uh, most continuously operating template central bank in the world. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting that in you know, 12, 13 years, Bitcoin is at the value of the pound sterling, which is the fifth largest monetary base in the world, the fifth largest currency in the world, the fifth largest central bank balance sheet in the world. So kind of interesting. We're very, very close to, uh, to passing like, like a world-renowned currency. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So does that mean that central bankers have to take it seriously now, or can <laughs> can we can they still go on and ignoring it? Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, often I just feel like I'm tweeting this stuff out into the uh, to the ether, so to speak. I mean, I'm not really uh, you know prolific tweeter every day on this stuff, but I do love seeing some of the comments every quarter. Some people that like it understand it. Some people that don't understand it, and uh, certainly have the the the. From the central bank corner, you know, I haven't hear, heard any central banks, uh, you know, quoting this or thinking about this. So it's going to be a while, I think, before they recognize uh, recognize where it is. But I just think it's interesting because, uh, not, again, not to toot, toot my own horn here a little bit, but like the, you know, you're not going to find this ranking anywhere. Like the IMF doesn't do it. The Bank for International Settlements doesn't do it. There's no, you know weirdly, or maybe not so weirdly, I don't know, every central bank in the world has a different, like really shoddily run website. There's very few central banks that have very good APIs where you can like easily get their data. They do have the data there, but it's very hard to find sometimes. And sometimes there's firewalls or uh, geo filters. So uh, it's just interesting to put it all together and see it, uh, I think every, you know, every quarter, how it evolves. And um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, no, they haven't, they haven't, haven't really taken notice, um, but it's it's number seven. Remains number seven. Uh, if you include gold, of course, it's number one. So then you have the euro. It's actually about $7 trillion balance sheet uh, of base money. The dollar is about $6.39 trillion. Uh, 
the yen, a little less than six trillion, the yuan, Chinese yuan, about five trillion dollar equivalent. And then the pound is about 1.3 trillion. So Bitcoin, if Bitcoin closes the month above, you know, 68, 69,000, that would be a first to pass the the formerly great British pound. Yeah, but then they can just print some more if they wanted to take the position back. It's true. It's very true. So, and can, you know, <laughs> unfair advantage. You know, yeah, and that is if they hold their exchange rate right to Bitcoin and but or to the other relative to the other currencies. It's interesting. Canada over the course of 2020 exploded their balance sheet, like up you know two x, even close to three x at one point. Uh, it's a little bit subsiding at the moment. Australia as well in the last year uh, exploded. They jumped into the top 10 uh, after actually both of those were out of the top 10 for a long time, as far as I recall, tracking this stuff. So yeah, they can indeed just, um, at least in the short term, that uh, Cantillian effect of simply, um, simply uh, you know, those that are closest to the money, printing it, using it, benefiting from it, they can do that uh, until maybe the market catches up with it and dilutes the dilutes the purchasing power. Um, of course, the you know everyday person gets hurt after that. So, I think you've told me this before, but um, so why does the euro eclipse some of the other currencies in terms of circulating supply? That surprises me. Those top four, so the the euro, the dollar, the yen, the Japanese yen, and the Chinese yuan, they 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 trade places a lot, and in fact. In the early days of Bitcoin, the Chinese yuan was the largest one on record of the top four for, for years, uh, you know, like 2009, 10, even after all the stimulus that we hear that the, you know, the Federal Reserve was doing. If you put mm. like the Chinese yuan, the, you know, their balance sheet in dollar terms or accordingly take the Eurozone nations and put them in dollar terms, it just, it just shakes out that that the balance sheets at certain times, uh, some are larger than, than the others. Um, Europe is interesting. I don't know, you know, they, they've had, as many places did, a lot of aggressive, aggressive uh, stimuli, <laughs> is that the plural? Stimuli of, um, of, uh, from, from COVID. And, uh, you know, that was apparently a good thing when the United States couldn't come to any uh, sort of uh, agreements in 2020. Europe was apparently uh, making markets confident by their their ability to come together, the politicians, and doing a lot of stimulus, um, post-COVID stimulus and, and stimulus bonds and, and whatnot. But yeah, that's what that that is. It's basically is new debt being formed to fund various programs and no uh, investors basically in the marketplace can't shore all that up. So the only place that can buy some of that debt is with newly printed money from the central bank. That's basically what's happening. So um, it's not directly answering your question, Alec, but I mean, it's, I can't provide one reason why the, uh, you know, sometimes the euro is higher, sometimes the dollar, sometimes the yen even. Um, you know, the yen and the Swiss franc, they, they uh, are interestingly owning, uh, you know, Facebook stock or Meta stock, whatever the hell it's called these days. Um, hmm. uh, Apple stock, uh, maybe some others I can't think of right now. It's not a huge portion of their balance sheet. Like you're talking trillions of all of those central banks. Well, less than a trillion actually for the Swiss franc, but you know, trillions for the Japanese yen. And you're talking like, you know, a couple hundred billion in stock that they own. So it's not like a huge, huge portion of the money that they print goes to stocks. But um, 
you know, it is interesting. And this is something I always say, like, you know, a lot of the Austrian economists that I like and like some older ones, like from, you know, stuff, people that were worried about this stuff in the 80s and the 90s, you know, when interest rates were like 15, 20%. Uh, that was always the threat was that when they run out of uh, when they run out of uh, government bonds to purchase, like what else are they going to do to, uh, you know, to keep the, the money spigot going? And, mm-hmm. and the answer was quite simple. I remember reading this in Murray Rothbard's writings. He said, you know, they'll just simply buy other assets. And it's true. You know, I mean, the U.S. indirectly bought real estate post 2008. They indirectly uh, bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities, which were failed in the market. So, the, so you know, they bought mortgage-backed securities, which means they're indirectly owning bad real estate, bad real estate value. And, and other central banks are now buying stocks. So, and have been for years and years. So it's, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not completely at like, uh, you know, on the pulse of, how the wind shift of what assets they will buy, but it's very interesting that like yeah. we're finally seeing after you know decades and decades of a lot of Austrian economists warning that like hey they, they can they can buy whatever they want like you can't stop them no matter what they say no matter what their charter says they're just going to buy whatever they can to you know keep that monetary spigot going keep you know their friends happy and whatnot and uh, and that's happening of course the most interesting one would be if they start to buy Bitcoin <laughs> because. Uh, Paradoxically, paradoxically, they'll they'll see that you know they're losing value, they're losing faith in other parts of the market, but they can hold and reserve Bitcoin. And obviously, El Salvador famously doing that. Um, Kenya announced that they're doing it. It's not it's not legal tenure, but Kenya, as far as I remember, I, I haven't gotten down to the Kenyan central bank. Actually, I do have the, some data from the Kenyan central bank, but it's not included in this exhibit. It's quite small, you know, dollar wise. But they are reserving Bitcoin. Uh, or at least announced that they have. Um, I think some Caribbean countries as well are, you know, talked about it. So it's. I, I thought s- someone in Eastern Europe, one of those countries, did too. I thought they had like 250 BTC. I thought. Oh, it was like Bulgaria or something. Yeah, I think yeah, it was the, Bulgaria. Maybe. Yeah, that was a uh, that was like a Silk Road esque type thing. It wasn't even a dark market, was it, Michelle? I mean, it was just they just confiscated it from yeah, someone. Yeah, it was confiscated from some some people. Yeah. I don't remember the, the exact story, but apparently they're still holding it. Yeah, yeah, it was a good move just to hold it. Of course, yeah. you know, did they get it legitimately? Probably not, but um, they're still they're still holding it, which certainly has helped them. So that's that's quite interesting. And Bulgaria, yeah, that's one that's not in the Eurozone, uh, although they are in the European Union. So 19 nations that are included in that Eurozone number of, you know, $7 trillion equiv- equivalent. That... 19 area, you know, 19 country area as well, like last year fell behind China as far as GDP, like block. I think the European Union themselves might be like all Euro, European Union countries might be larger than China as far as GDP. But uh, if you look at the Eurozone themselves, just the countries that use the Euro, it fell last year as as far as like ranking behind China. So it's it's now US number one and China number two, if you look at it from that from that perspective as far as like countries, economic value of countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let me ask a question on, um, uh, you posted one of the diagrams that includes the exchange rate regime. And so Eurozone, US, Japan, all free floating, and then China, other managed agreement. What does that mean? These are grouped by the IMF. And so there's actually a report 
uh, it's called uh, exchange rate regimes and other <laughs> other other managed things, something like that name by the IMF. Um, they were, they do it every year. Uh, the last one was published in, uh, I think it was April. Actually, it might have been, it's typically in April, I think with COVID and stuff, they've been doing it late. It might have even been October. Uh, I just put it in actually the the latest this year. But um, yeah, it's it's basically, it's not a freely floating currency, but because you know, because the, the euro, the dollar, those currencies, obviously, like they are what they are. There's nothing behind. The only thing that would be behind them would be government bonds of the very same denomination. China is a good example because China, it's not, it's not free floating, but it's not also fully pegged. It was in 2005, it was pegged to the dollar. And so you had um, the uh, Chinese... PBOC, the People's Bank of China, Central Bank of China, instead of just holding, you know, dollar treasuries like the Federal Reserve, they would hold, uh, well, sorry, instead of relatively holding their own country's sovereign debt, like instead of holding, you know, uh, Chinese government bonds, they, in order to bring legitimacy to their currency as they were coming up in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, they were owning uh, all the other major countries' debt. Uh, as a way to support their, their, uh, and that might've actually, I said it was pegged to the dollar. It might've been a basket. I can't remember at the moment, but it was 2005 when they started to float. So you can just look at a chart and you can see from 2005, it was pegged after 2005, it was not pegged. So before 2005, they were highly managing the value of that currency based on the dollars, uh, based on the more specifically the U S government bonds that they held on their balance sheet, as well as European bonds, as well as bank of Japan bonds. And as I understand, they are not transparent about it. Like the world does not know exactly how many they own. They have a total number on their balance sheet and there are estimates of, you know, I just say roughly a third of each, but uh, there is no, they're very, very uh, non-transparent about it. And, uh, but anyway, that's, that's aside from your question. Um, So, so that's, that's where this other managed arrangement comes in is basically if they're free floating, the currency would pretty much either only have Chinese government bonds or maybe like some stocks or whatever, but it would be a very, like the market could freely trade it. There'd be no capital controls. Um, you could take money in and out of the country. You could send it abroad, all this stuff. Like you can mostly do with, you know, the Euro, the yen, uh, the dollar, um, or the Swiss franc or the Swedish krona or whatever, like the, the floating currencies of the world. Uh, you can't do that with China. So that's one reason, but also it's an overhang from those days when it was pegged, when it was truly like the value of the yuan uh, was fixed to the dollar and to the other currencies basically that was holding. So um, that's why it's not freely floating, but it's also not pegged or boarded to, to those very currencies anymore. So it's kind of in the middle ground there. And that's why I was thinking about how to do this table originally. I could have only done the freely floating currencies and gone down the list, but you just China was actually the reason that I did not do that. But you can't ignore China because it's just so big. Their balance sheet is so big and it rivals, you know, mm. the dollar, the euro, and the yen's balance sheet. So more of a art, not a science with this stuff, because um, if you want to even be technical about it, like when China was pegged, right? Like pre two thousand five theoretically like nothing in their balance sheet represented like yuan 
if it was fully pegged, if it was a fully currency peg or currency board, um, it would mean that its currency was basically like the dollar with a different picture on it. You know, just for cultural reasons, you'd have it like with, you know, their politicians or whatever. But, you know, like, like take the example of Denmark. Like Denmark today is, is, in, the, is in the European Union, but for cultural reasons, they didn't want to join the Eurozone. So they pegged it to the Euro. So the base money of Denmark is actually the Euro. That's why I don't have the Danish kroner on this chart. Hmm. Um, because the, the majority of their, the Danish uh, central bank's claims are uh, European government bonds. And on their liability side, or sorry, on their asset side, uh, they will have some claims, direct claims with not like some bonds of the European Union, but with the European Central Bank. They actually have like direct claim on the European Central Bank. So it's kind of a, it's a derivative of the Euro itself. Uh, so, so it gets a little bit hairy to pick apart these differences, but um, you will not see on this table, you won't see like the Hong Kong dollar, the Danish kroner, the Emirates. Uh, I think it's the Durham, I think it's called. Durham, yeah. yeah. So they're all pegged to the dollar or the euro. So I, I did not put them on there. Uh, it is true. There is economic value there. And when uh, this, we finally launched this website that I've been talking about for like a year um, and I've been paying Michelle for Nauta Cloud for, which hasn't launched, I will, I will put those pegged currencies on there just because of course there's economic value there and everything. But this is just, you know, anyway, Bitcoin's larger than all of those monetary bases. So it's not a big deal. But like, yes, there's economic value with those pegged currencies, but they are there is a huge portion of their balance sheets, which is a direct asset claim. It's like a checking account with the other central bank that they're pegged to. So that's why it's like, well, since they're pegged and they're, they're, they're pegged to that currency, like you'd kind of be double counting in a sense. Um, not fully, so that's why it's, again, it's, it's a bit nebulous, but I'm, I'm getting way into the weeds on what all that means. But like, for the most part, these currencies float on their own they're not fixed and they're tradable. Their currencies are tradable in the market and the central banks have some, they have some authority. Like legally, they're not bound. Like in, in Denmark and in Hong Kong, they're legally bound to keep the peg. They have to uh, buy and sell euros as they can in Denmark or buy and sell dollars as they can in Hong Kong to exactly keep the, the peg. They have a direct claim on the, their respective, those respective central banks to keep the peg. And uh, it just doesn't, it, it, it shows that in some sense, that little Danish paper note or the Hong Kong dollar paper note is just, it's a dollar in disguise or it's a euro in disguise. So that's why I don't put those there, but uh, I will eventually get the, that list expanded so you can see the peg currencies as well. But again, that's a, sorry, I get on these tangents. <laughs> so, but let me ask this then, would you expect when, We'll take China, for example, with their CBDC or, or any other central bank that has designs on issuing a CBDC. Would you expect that to be new issuance or would they be uh, exchanging existing circulating supply just for the digital version? I think both. I think both. I think they'll be, you know, there's no like uh, hard and fixed way how they'll do that. I'm, I'm sure that some people will turn in some physical currency or just not need it anymore or um, just not take as much out and they won't need to issue as much, right? Physical. Mm -hmm. And then the, the digital will take its place um, or they'll just issue fresh digital as well on top. So it's, it's, it's both. And, uh, but definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely interesting thing will be coming there and it's, that's not fully fleshed out here. Um, 
if you can see slide uh, tweet 19 there, you can see the, diff- the split between physical cash and digital cash. That is that account that we're talking about, the account at the central bank. Uh, that's the lighter purple there. And you see that's like really the part that they can go crazy on the central banks. That's the part that's exploded uh. specifically since the 2008 slide. Um, and again, this is a global level. All the central banks combined there. So soon, soon you're going to see a third shaded thing, and that's going to be the CBDC. Hmm. Interesting. Which is interesting because that changes the economics too. Like, um, you know, if if people are running around with CBDCs in their mobile phones, you would presume then that the banking system is going to start to shrink in some ways uh, because. Why would I need money in a checking account? As we just were talking about right at the beginning of the episode, like why would I need, even need money in a checking account if I just had a CBDC or I was forced to use a CBDC? So it's going to be interesting to see how those dynamics play out. And in my opinion, CBDCs will be horrible for the customer, as we talked about for many censorship reasons before. We can we can definitely you know jam on that again this this episode. But not only for those reasons would it be horrible. It would be horrible economically because you know you just had this one lumbering government entity running an app on your phone instead of having access to all the wonderful banking and credit services that banks you know used to offer before they were uh, bogged down by regulations. Of course, another tangent side issue, but um, both of those factors will be hindered. I think will hinder you know the the individual, the private uh, private services, financial services. And all that stuff with the issuance of a CBDC, like if if you just need to hold cash because you hold cash until you get your next paycheck or whatever, then why would you interact much with your bank account? And if you don't interact much with your bank account, then those savings can't be lent out to others in the economy, other uh, other businesses. Maybe what will happen at least in some places is that they will still use the retail banking uh, for for marketing and selling the CBDC actually to the to the end customers. I, I could totally see a world like where this CBDC app will not be like a Banque de France app, but you will just get an app from your bank for every bank account you you have. Yeah, uh, and they will be interoperable, but uh, still issued by the banks. And no, the the bank lobby is pretty strong at least here, so I, I, they, they will not let just get replaced like easily. Yeah, I mean, certainly the central bank exists for banks, so you would expect that something like that uh, could happen. To use the economist monetary supply terms now, like there's the physical currency issued, right, which is at the central bank level, and say ninety five percent, ninety ninety five percent just sits out there in the world, right? It's, it's, it's under mattresses, it's in, it's in grocery store tills, it's not in banks, it's not in, you know, it's in people's wallets. 90 to 95% of physical cash is just it's in the world, in the economy, trading hands every day. Only 5%, 5 to 10% max is in banks. So that's, yeah, that's what you're getting at, Keto. That would be, an, it, it would be interesting to see how that ratio would evolve under a CBDC regime because the CBDC would be analogous to all the physical paper currency that's issued, 100% of it. But if, if, if 90% is just sitting out on people's phones, then still that's, you know, only 10% would then be able to be utilized for financial services, which again is the same as paper currency today, which shows why paper is kind of 
worthless from a banking, you know, from a banking side. Really, though, because I think the CBDC will come with the guarantee that if <coughs> something happens to your phone, you can still recover it from somewhere. Uh, and it will not be a 24-seed phrase, definitely 24-word seed yeah. phrase. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. I, I think the bank is, the, the retail bank is a very good custodian for, for CBDC just to guarantee that if something happens, you just go to the bank, they reset your app and you get your money back. Yeah. If it's in a, a commercial banking app, like you're saying, then yes, then it's the exact same function as physical cash sitting in a bank vault and physical cash that sits in a bank vault today can be part of the financial system, which is not a bad thing. Like this isn't a discussion on fractions or banking, whatever, like people should know me by now. I don't, that's not the main boogeyman. The main boogeyman is the central bank, but to me at least, but yeah, I mean, if the CBDC is spending most of its time in the economy in the mobile apps of banks, then it will be fractionally backed as people might worry about or might not, but it's that then it would be at least at work in the economy. But if it's just sitting in a, in a, in the Bank de France app, then it, it cannot be used by other banks. It's just, it's like having cash in your wallet. But you guys are assuming that, that the CBDCs would be bearer assets at all, right? Like I could imagine it being issued and it is always just digitally represented to you, but never custodial. Um, or it's never self-custodied, rather. So uh, in that case, and that's what the banks would want, right? They would like they would just want this kind of Venmo cash app version of digital money, where it all resided on their balance sheets, and they transacted it amongst themselves and and you know vendors, and then the users just could see their balance, right? But you guys are talking about it as if like you know someone issues a CBDC, and then I actually own that money, you know my keys, air quote, or whatever, uh, in my mobile wallet. Well, no, I, I don't think that's going to happen. It will be 100% uh, non-self-custodial. Yeah, that's my assumption, too. But it's still, it's got to be in one place. I, it, it might all be, but like a master, it probably is going to be a master seed by the central bank. Well, I guess it's a typical example of you don't need any blockchain for that anyway, because you, you could just do that in a database. Yeah, like I don't see it being peer-to-peer, right? It's, you would have digital money, and but if I was to send one of you you know, my CBDC, it would be the bank transacting it for me. Like I wouldn't be sending it peer to peer. That's my assumption on how the banks would do it. It's going to be more like that light purple shade of the graph than anything else. It's really going to be just like a bank reserve. Economically, there's no difference because if it's in a banking app that a bank controls bank custody, then the bank will know that it's on that. It's on the bank's balance sheet. They can lend against it. They can fin- do financial engineering against it. They can uh, they can earn on it from other assets. If it was under the custody of each bank, sort of first, it's less bad than if it was just a central bank. Because if it was just a central bank, it would be just horrible. Because if it was just a central bank, one app, whatever, even if it was like database app, like just a bad running app, slow running app, there would not be a way for that to be really part of the economy other than just you know trading hands, you know, digitally speaking, just like cash goes today. So it'd be less bad if the banks were managing it, it'd be more part of the economy. But you would still run into the same issues that we've talked about before regarding censorship and all the other stuff. There's nothing novel there. Yeah, I guess the main question remains like, we, we would be a new money or is it just a new representation of the same existing money? Like you just can't, will you just be able to trade your paper euros to digital euros or will you get new digital euros for free from the central bank or something? I'm under the impression that there are some, like Brazil has this, like it's called a PIX account. It's basically a proto CBDC. I, I, I don't know the details of their 
database, but like that, that's a Bank of Brazil app, as far as I understand. It's not like a you know Venmo or a third party or a bank or another financial institution's app. So uh, that just means that that money is just sort of going around peer to peer, and people are using it. It's not used for any other financial services. So uh, that's that's less interesting for the economy and whatnot. But um, regardless, the big problem there, the the big problem for these things is going to be the censorship, as we've talked about before, right? Like if they can really control like what retailers you go to, how much sugar or alcohol Mm -hmm. or caffeine you consume in a week, uh, those things, yeah, I I think you can work that out, right? If with a, with a digital currency. Well, and imagine like, uh, when was it 20, early 2013, 2014, when Cyprus did the confiscation, um, that becomes extremely easy. Uh, and you can't even like run to the bank and try to pull out cash, you know, last minute. Uh, they can just take it at whatever rate they want and hold it as long as they want. So what do you guys think about CBDCs? Do you think that that will be uh, successful? It's going to have a lot of starts and stops. It's going to take 15 more years. I mean, they're definitely going to go digital. It's definitely, this is their time to shine, to compete against Bitcoin. Well, I, I don't know what will be first. We we have some uh, like retail chains in France launching their stable coins, and uh, I think this will directly compete with the the Eurobank uh, CBDC. And th- these corporations are first, so maybe they have a head start and an advantage here. I don't know. I think it definitely happens. First of all, you know, wait till the sanction enforcing elements wrap their heads around the power they'll have if the circulating supply is digital and programmable. Um, so I think you know there's certain elements like OFAC that'll see um, some advantages in it. But I, I don't, listen, China's gonna get there first and it's gonna be the worst version of it, the least free. Um, and yeah. then hopefully the reaction to that is, well, if we're gonna digitize, we need to do it as some kind of counter to that model you know there needs to be a western freer version of this but it's not you know uh every one of us all the average people lose out in this there's no way it's going to be just great for you know the average person yeah i mean certainly they're they're going to do it for the banks it's you know the central bank exists for the banks for the banking system they're all buddies and cronies and stuff so they're going to do it with the as you guys said with the advice of the banking system in mind. They're not just going to try to like just have, you know, 30, 30 random shitty apps that are, you know, closed. Well, they're all going to be closed source, but that, you know, that are just <laughs> vulnerable to major hacks where, you know, people can just disrupt their base money like that uh, immediately. But yeah, the major thing for me, yeah, would be like you said, social credit score, censorship and all that. But this goes back to what we're talking about with, with Alex Gladstein and people that, are Bitcoin fans and I agree with most everything they say, but like I fear the day where like the Bitcoin fans are like loving that, you know, Putin is supporting Bitcoin and <laughs> Lukashenko and some of these rogue regimes where like, you know, again, I'm not talking about US imperialism here. I'm just talking about autocrats, dictators, awful regimes that have no respect for human rights. But what's their best way to get around these exact sanctions that you mentioned, Alec? Oh, it's Bitcoin. So let's support Bitcoin. And then like, you know, these random libertarians in the U.S. are going to be like cheering that on. That's what I'm going to be loathing. Yeah, as long as Bitcoin can continue to somewhat fly under the radar until it gets so big that it's impossible to reverse course, I think we have a small win there. Well, that's a big win, actually. That's a huge win. 
but I don't know. I think some the anti-Bitcoin forces are not nearly done with their their side of the argument, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not just talking about like in the U.S., but you know the Lagards and Genslers and. So far, the whole swaps, reg- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the regulation through enforcement, like that. That's been an ad hoc approach, and that'll that'll continue. But there will be, you know, we've already seen it in the U.S., but uh, there will be some sweeping, directly crypto-related regulatory. It was already passed, wasn't it? Yeah, but like it hasn't gone into effect. So the the latest one goes into effect in 2024. So there's yeah. time for that to still be yep. challenged in court. But you know, when some of those that are really impactful and completely change the notion of what a broker is, for instance, uh, or they try to apply the notion of what a broker is to the crypto world. You know, if any of that actually becomes enforced law, that's bad. Uh, and as we've seen, you know, the crypto industry will readily just hop jurisdictions. You know, we saw it with mining leaving China. Yeah. Huge, huge win for the West. What that whole thing, what, how long did it take before hash power was back up to, you know, pre China ban? It was like 60 days. I mean, and that is a physical industry. You know, that required taking rigs out of massive data centers and shipping them across the world and setting them up again. So, you know, you, it's a lot easier just to move a company or set up um, an entity in a new jurisdiction. So, I think what happens if is if any country overregulates in the U.S. is, you know, potentially going to be a prime offender here. Everyone's just going to go, uh, and they'll go to the freest place that they can do business. Uh, and they'll change citizenships, and they'll you know, re-register companies, and that that arbitrage will go on, and it'll favor uh, the kind of more forward-looking jurisdiction. And you see it like a lot of the places like FTX, right? They set up, I think, in Bahamas or Bermuda, Bahamas, right? So they went around to a bunch of different countries. They talked to all the leaders, and what's going to be you know the freest place for us, the most tax-friendly place for us to set up and have our exchange run. There you go, right? Uh, that everyone will do that. Yeah, Bahamas is one definitely. They've been pro crypto, pro Bitcoin for a long time. It's a great move, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's going to play out very well for them. I find myself continuously worrying about the same issues, which typically seem to work themselves out in Bitcoin world. But you know, you're always waiting for that next shoe to drop and for Bitcoin to get to that next spot in people's minds. But you know, I, I guess the road is just never smooth, right? It's never going to be that straight line. Um, even though I have a nice straight line drawn there from uh, 70k passing the UK, <laughs> the UK's balance sheet to uh, you know 250k to where it will be in the uh, in the ranks of the dollar, the euro, the yen, and the yuan. Wait, at 250, it gets up to the top five. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the top oh. four. Top four. I didn't know we were that close. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, so it'll be top uh, five, like taking gold out of the picture. It's six. It will pass the UK at like 70k. And that's the last mid major there, mid major currencies, and. Um, all the others are at like 250, 275. Where's the slide? For those that are following along there. But anyway, it's, it's, it's always a giant wall of worry. I'm not worried when I hold Bitcoin. Like it's, it's great. And you, know, you don't have to worry about all this financial repression and all that stuff. Actually, actually yeah, the, damn, the euro has been just flying in the last year now up to 7 trillion equivalent. It would be 372 to get to the euro. But 260 to get to the yuan, the Chinese yuan, 260K. Mm. So that would be poetic. Yeah. So it's a wall of worry. It's a wall of worry. That's all I wanted to say there. (laughs) So, uh, I haven't seen anyone post that wall of worry chart in maybe eight hours, uh, on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So it's probably overdue. (laughs) Yeah. 
Great stuff, man. Yeah, I have to go through the rest of the thread. It's uh, there's a lot of information there. It's a bit long for a for a Twitter post, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I try to extend it by at least one or two tweets every time. So yeah, 70, 70 some tweets is getting. Uh, <laughs> maybe I need to pare it back at some point. Seventy eight, not bad. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that's that. We are literally at the cusp of taking down the uh, formerly Great British Pound. So I'm very excited to see how that that one plays out. And who, who knows what will be the catalyst? Who knows if it's another company that that reserves Bitcoin, takes it takes uh, custody, takes it onto their balance sheet. Who knows what will be the next shoe to drop there. But uh, that's probably enough on that. Anything else here, fellas, on this Friday night? Taproot activates in 234 blocks. It was 244 when we started. Very exciting, yes. A lot of uh, anonymity, privacy upgrades there for the way the transactions look on the, on the blockchain. So definitely check out Adam Back's uh, interview did actually a couple years ago now. He did a nice overview on Schnorr and Taproot in that episode. But yeah, it's very exciting. Much more calm upgrade than the last one we had uh, four years ago now. Yeah, and I think maybe some of that calm, I mean, so it's a desirable upgrade, but also four years ago, the number of people that were in crypto was much smaller and they were all paying more attention. That's just my um, overall generalization, but I think it's true. So now there's a lot more participants, but there's a lot few or relative to the number of participants, the kind of like core people that really follow these things and care about, you know, protocol updates is fewer. Uh, and so I, I don't know if we have as much of that type of, you know, battle royale. I mean, I could be wrong, right? I guess it depends on the upgrades, but, um, and this is, I actually think this is the proper trend, right? As, as we acquire more users, you're going to just have users that don't care about the protocol, that just, you know, have a strike wallet and they know that they can transact. And it's like, I've got, you know, Venmo and Cash App and Strike and that, and Abra or whatever. Uh, and, and that's cool, right? Not every user needs to be fully initiated and, and you know, some of them will be. Um, but it, it might mean that that kind of fervor around this stuff seems less industry-wide because the industry is too big to, to follow everything. I would say this upgrade is much less controversial than the previous one. Sure. Uh, so maybe that's also one reason why we don't hear more uh, more drama around it. There, there was some drama around the activation method, but that, that's basically it. I mean, it's such a, people definitely want to be so careful. It was such an overhang, such a uh, hangover <laughs> from... From the last one, I think, yeah, they just want to be really, really careful. So it's it is great that uh, miners are, you know, locked it in. And it's going to activate in the next couple of days. So very good for the network there for sure. Zuckerberg says he's going to delete all of the uh, the facial recognition scans that Facebook has the billions in their database. Do you guys find that believable? What about the backups? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, like. Where is it? Does he gonna have some like secret backup in Iceland or something? I mean, does a company like that really delete that much data, and can it be deleted? Speaking about our credit check stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not gonna be quick to trust Facebook, but they they take a lot of risk by making a claim like that and then not doing it because they're under so much scrutiny. Uh, and so the if and now you know they've seen the effects of having an internal whistleblower. And by the way, I think that Francis Haugen story, the Facebook whistleblower, uh, one of the smaller components of it that I found really interesting is that she, she 
stated that part of what made her comfortable blowing the whistle is that she had significant personal crypto holdings. And if she got totally iced out of Silicon Valley, which is what would happen and you know couldn't get a job anywhere, she you know was financially independent and kind of immediately went down to Puerto Rico and started hanging out with her you know crypto libertarian friends there. Uh, and it gave her the independence to feel like she could say what she wanted. Now, say what you will about whether that was an orchestrated, you know, planned, hey, let's get Francis Haugen and time it, you know, politically, that that's possible too. But the fact that she was comfortable saying what she wanted to say is in part due to her crypto holdings making her financially independent. Mm. I didn't even catch that part of the story. It wasn't, I mean, it didn't, that wasn't the main threat. I only saw it in one, I forget where it was, but one article about the whole, um, of all the coverage, it mentioned that, but that, and it was a quote from her. She actually said, you know, this is, what enabled me to feel free to speak. Interesting. But of course, when she spoke, it was all like, let's get the government more involved or better regulation. They're only concerned about the profit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a problem. Which is always a, yeah, it's a tough line to get that uh, classical liberal uh, value across. It's always, you know, we need more regulation, need more regulation. I would just say walk away from Facebook, as we've said many times here, but... Um, Although I haven't fully walked away from Facebook, but so the the good news for the Quest users out there is that Facebook finally announced they will be getting rid of the Facebook account requirement for Quest users. Oh, really? Yeah, that that was one of the most annoying things I found about that little world. I think they're spot on to go after the metaverse as the next like big market. So I, I commend them for that. Um, but I I also don't want the metaverse to be you know a Facebook denominated world. Yeah, I'm just hoping it's not a stunt to make you create a meta account instead and then tell you that you actually need the meta account for your Facebook account and link them together again. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, I mean, it's cool and I, I'm very excited about the metaverse. I think one of the most exciting things about the whole concept is that it really enforces or reinforces to me the need for cryptographic primitives to be underpinning everything there, right? Because if, if you're going to represent yourself entirely digitally, you know, your money would have to be digital, your avatar is digital, uh, all of your artifacts and assets in the digital world, like everything needs to have a cryptographic under, underpinning or else it doesn't work. Uh, and so, you know, it creates a genuine use case for NFTs. It creates a genuine use case for cryptocurrencies. Uh, it creates a genuine use case for, you know, verifying hashes. Um, and whether that the average user is aware of all that in the background or not doesn't really matter. Uh, but a successful metaverse, I think, you know, requires all of that for provenance and authenticity. I was actually thinking, like, what actually is the metaverse? Because we we used to use that cyberspace world for, like, years of science fiction. And uh, why, why do we need a new one at all? Did you guys ever see the, the movie The Net? Yeah. <laughs> Sandra Bullock. <laughs> yeah, Dennis Miller and... Like for the 90s, like very little of it actually had to do with the net. It was just like some random stupid crime story. But like, I never did see that crypto movie from a couple years ago. Did you guys ever see that? No, it looked horrible. It's called Crypto. Mm. Yeah, it looked horrible. But like these new like buzzwords and then Hollywood, Hollywoodizes it. And then, you know, people think it's like, you know, the main thing. And then, yeah, the world just moves on. So have you guys seen Devs on Netflix? No. So highly recommend the show. And it's a, it's about... It's sort of one of those near future shows, so you don't really tell you when it's set, but it appears to be like 10 years from now or something. Uh, and it's all about the implications of massive 
data sets and what you could do with them. But the one of the themes is whether there is a true metaverse, as in there's multiple versions of uh, multiple instantiations of everyone's life and different courses that could possibly be taken, or if everything is linear. Uh, and the this, this show is fantastic. It's one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. Super entertaining, but also kind of philosophical. Uh, but the I think that there's like that version and sort of the physics version of the metaverse, and then there's you know the tech version of the metaverse, which is just that there's you know a lot of ecosystems and you can bridge across them. It kind of dovetails with the uh, all like the Web three stuff as well. Man, I would be so happy to go back to the Web one. <laughs> <laughs> can you define web one, two, and three, Michelle, for us? I can define web two because so before web two, we didn't know. Uh, we we just called that the web. Uh, so if, if I'm not mistaken, web two was like everything uh, heavily dynamic JavaScript based uh, apps. Um, before we had like statically rendered pages by servers and. Uh, you had to go to a new page or reload everything to to update the content. Right. Uh, Web 2.0 was like this, uh, let's say, client side running uh, r- running code, uh, which actually is not entirely true because we had like Flash and stuff like that before, but it wasn't as popular as, as all this HTML5 and JavaScript stuff. And uh, I actually don't exactly know what the Web3 is supposed to be compared to the Web2. It's just something you put in your bio so people know that they need to pay you a lot. <laughs> uh, no, but it's, I mean, isn't it just the, it's the decentralized Yeah, it's the big B word. It's, yeah, it's yeah. blockchain and, and metaverse. But it's also, supposedly, it's much more about uh, provenance and ownership of digital artifacts. So like your identity and, you know, your artwork and your music and like all, all the things that you've created or acquired can travel with you across platforms. So uh, instead of like Spotify owns music and, you know, Facebook owns newsfeed and whatever, whatever, uh, I own my stuff and I can move across the Web3 infrastructure. In Euro, we call that GDPR. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's... That's actually one of the hardest parts of GDPR. So it's not for content, but for all like your user info and data. Uh, Not for content you buy, but for content you create. Uh, You are by law supposed to be able to move your data from one platform to another. But it's not interoperable, so how do you, how does that even apply? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It, it means, like, f- first create, like, some standard form of that, and then, I don't know. So usually you just get a huge zip file with a ton of crap and figure it out yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, technically you can go to Apple and download all of your user data and all your... Yeah, ha- have you tried like to download all your LinkedIn or Facebook data? Uh, I've done it with Apple. But yeah, I'm sure it's the same with all of them. It's just like CSV files with... Yeah. It's, you know, useless. Well, I, I don't remember which platform, but some of them is giving like a, an HTML render, but it's like really very much web one or maybe zero five. Uh, <laughs> you, you, I, I think it's a when you export a, a group from Telegram, you, you get like this HTML render of the chat, but it's like very bare bones. It's like a single page with hundreds of thousands of messages and uh, and your pictures and videos attached. I mean, there's no incentive for any of those companies to make that a rich environment. And then then try to import that into Signal, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. But supposedly Web3 fixes that, right? Uh, and 
you know, there's more like creator ownership uh, in that world. So, but it's less convenient. It's almost certainly will be less convenient because the onus is on you to, you know, port your things and, and, you know, custody your assets and issue if you're going to issue things. Yeah, I guess the only real way to crack that is to just move back to self-hosting everything, which comes with other challenges. But. Sure, but I mean, we see some of that already. Like, you know, look at Matrix, right? You can host your own home server and you're still part of like the mesh of, and you can use any client. And like that, that to me is kind of like an, a Web3 type of application. I don't know if you would consider Matrix Web3, but that's more of the model that makes sense. And at some point, you know, just um, have to get away from, we talked about this as well with Josh, I mean, you have to get away with all the stuff I was talking about at the beginning as well. I mean, just passports and notaries and identity theft and all that. So um, I guess that's part of Web3 if it ever comes, but um, I don't know, the regulation's got to get smarter as well, which I'm not holding my breath on, so. Alec, I know you gotta you gotta stop here. Michelle, any any other parting words have you got? Uh, watch the blogs and Taproot. Yeah, all UTXOs will look alike, so that's uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, I wonder actually how long it would take like to move uh, most of the coins to to Taproot uh, addresses. I imagine it's very far from immediate. Yeah, especially if you count all the coins that will never move, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, indeed. And how many wallets and other software running on top of Bitcoin is actually compatible. We will see, and definitely uh, users and privacy and all that's going to be the better for it. So kudos to everybody that helped with that. And kudos to you, Michelle, as always, for uh, helping users run their own sovereign node, including myself. Let's talk soon, follow up, and hopefully Bitcoin will be larger than the pound by then. That would be great. All right, man. Take care. Thank you guys. Talk to you soon.